Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview Podcast, March 23rd, 2016, the Battle Over Brexit edition. I am Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics, the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. The opening words of my next sentence are usually joined as usual by, but not so today because there's nothing usual about this episode. Battered and buffeted as we've been in recent weeks by the political gales arising from the upcoming June referendum on Britain's membership of the EU, we at Political Worldview and the University of Birmingham thought we needed to have a special edition all about that where we could talk over the many issues and turbulences that it raises. With only the familiarity of producer Connor on the controls as a security blanket, I'm therefore convening a whole new group of world viewers today, but fondly regarded colleagues all, and more importantly, keen experts on the subject of Europe and its ways. So let's say hello. First, we have Isabel Hertner, lecturer in German Studies and European Politics and Society, and also Deputy Director at the Institute for German Studies. Hello there, Isabel. How are you doing? Hi, thanks. All Okay. Next up, we have Nicole Shikluna, lecturer in politics and international relations, who's written a book that has the words Europe and crisis in the title, uh, and so is well equipped for the present discussion, I hope. How are you doing, Nicole? I'm very good, thank you. And finally, we have Anthony Hopkins, not that one, uh, a visiting lecturer at the Political Science Department, who does work on British politics and political parties. How are you doing, Anthony? Hi, Adam, and everyone else. Not too bad, thank you. Awesome. To business. For decades now, perhaps since the beginning, it's been fair to say that if the United Kingdom and the European Union had a relationship on Facebook, it would be under the heading, It's Complicated. The UK uh, joined the then European Economic Community in 1973. It had its first referendum on membership and possibly leaving in 1975. The Labour Party campaigned in the general election of 1983 on a policy of withdrawal from the EEC. Margaret Thatcher's government was fractured and her reign as Prime Minister terminated as a result of arguments over the European integration in 1990. And the Conservative Party was racked by division on the subject for years thereafter. Flash forward to 2013, when in an effort to calm discontent within his Conservative Party government, Prime Minister David Cameron promised to hold a new in-out referendum on Britain's membership, a promise he will now fulfil on June 23rd. The campaign has brought with it argument about the economic benefits of membership, the costs of departure, the limits on British sovereignty entailed by the EU, and the sheer uncertainty, which is mammoth, it seems, of what a Brexit would look like. It's also brought with it rancour within Conservative ranks, as London Mayor and recently returned Member of Parliament Boris Johnson took the plunge of supporting the campaign to leave, infuriating the Prime Minister and setting himself up for a future leadership campaign. Under a special freedom granted for this campaign, some cabinet ministers have also been liberated to campaign for exit, including such luminaries as Michael Gove and Ian Duncan Smith, the latter of whom departed stormily from the cabinet this week for reasons that were officially unrelated, but which some said were really connected with the EU fight. So... Um, I got my first contact of the campaign this week via a mailer from leave.eu in my letterbox. Uh, I can't say it altogether convinced me with its text, but I took it as a sign that the campaign really is underway in earnest. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm going to start with you, uh, Anthony. You're someone uh, who, of those in the room, I think is most sympathetic uh, to the case for a Brexit uh, how do you think things are going for that campaign so far? Or is it a campaign? Is it campaigns? Because uh, there seems to be some question mark over who exactly is in charge of making that case right now. Well, I, I think it's, uh, it, it absolutely is campaigns because, of course, they can't agree about uh, what 
exactly to focus on in that campaign. I would say neither side of the campaign is going particularly well. I'm not sure the, uh, the in campaign is making an excellent and positive case for remaining and selling the EU to the people. Most of it is based on the negative side of what might happen if we leave. But undoubtedly, the no campaign, the leave campaign, is facing a real challenge because it is obviously the more uncertain side of the argument. And that means there are big disagreements on what you decide to focus on as a potential reason for leaving. So it's, it is a harder side to campaign on anyway, I would say. Because there, because there are these two formal campaigns, right? There's Leave the right. EU, the people who, who mail-shotted me, uh, and indeed yes. most of the country, it seems. What's the other one called again? I feel left out. Now, it's Vote Leave is Vote the other leave. really big one, yes. Okay, and, and what is the difference between... I assume those are different... Is that just personalities, or do they have a different... A take on how to make this argument? A lot of it is personalities. There are some differences. You get a little bit more in what I've seen, and I'm, I'm, I feel left out. I've missed out on this mail shot. Um, <laughs> but um, well, I'll, I'll loan you mine uh, if, if you do good. well today. <laughs> That'd be very good of you. Thank you. Uh, you do tend to get, uh, because one of the areas of disagreement is uh, things like immigration, because for a lot of people, and the polling shows immigration is a big issue. Uh, so that is, uh, that's a big area of dispute because a lot of the people aren't in favour of. Uh, aren't, fo- aren't, aren't focusing on immigration, and they want to make they want to try to make a positive case for leaving. Uh, but at the same time, it's very tempting to spend a lot of time talking about immigration because the polling shows that's something people are uh, going to vote on the basis of. Mm. Uh, so I think the um, the letter you have. Uh, I wish I'd seen it, but I think I don't think that talks about immigration too much, does it? It's... Uh, no, I, d- I don't think I've seen much mention of yeah. that stuff about uh, wastes of money and yes. uh, uh, illegitimate restrictions on yes. this and that and the other. Yes. But I don't think they foreground immigration. No. no, and I think that's that's what that side is trying to concentrate on, trying to make the case that the EU is an expensive customs union and that there might be benefits to free trade if we leave to focus on those kind of arguments rather than... Uh, the, the Vote Leave campaign, which has a little bit more of a focus on immigration. Right. And you've alluded to the, to, to the view that many in the Leave campaigns have of the campaign to stay earlier, which is that it's, it's fear-driven. Uh, it is mobilizing fear. Project fear, in fact, is the kind of shorthand that's being used to characterize it. Uh, I guess two things about that. Do you think that's fair? Uh, and secondly... If it is fair, is that really isn't that a bit of a like boo-hoo complaint to have about uh, the other side in the political argument? In the sense that we pretty much know we're in a political science department here that fear is one of the most effective ways of getting people to vote the way you want them to. So if you can get fear on your side rather than the other, well, that's just uh, that's just politics, isn't it? Oh, I, I certainly wouldn't. It's absolutely politics. It's uh, it's what the campaign should be all about. But equally, uh, the people who wish to leave get accused of stirring up racism and fear and all sorts of things if they talk about immigration, and they say that's unfair. And, of course, that is the politics that both sides are concentrating on. And, of course, the reason I'm here as a, a very rare academic on this side is because there is a sense that it's somehow unacceptable to do that. The politics of advocating leave, certainly in academia, is, uh, is not remotely fashionable or acceptable to say. It's, it's inevitable in, in politics that we have these kind of uh, disagreements. I enjoy the cut and thrust of this. I think most of us do. But I think the Remain campaign do have to argue the fact that there's still a lot of uncertainty about where the EU is going. There are a lot of tensions within the EU, and, uh, apart from in Britain nowadays. So the idea that there is some kind of certainty about where the EU is going and what the future of the EU is, I, I would say, is, is still questionable in itself. There's still a lot of doubt in that side. However, I, the 
we've seen this in previous referendums. It's been the case in many of the referendums across Europe that fear will almost certainly be the key factor and the uncertainty means that the, uh, the Remain campaign have a big advantage in that area. Mm. Okay, Isabel, I'm going I'm to pivot over to, to you now. I mean, are you part of Project Fear? Uh, do you, do you, I mean, you're, you're pretty solidly committed uh, for all sorts of reasons, uh, mm. professional and, and, and intellectual, mm-hmm. to remaining in the European Union or to Britain remaining in, in the European Union. How do you think the campaign to, to make the case to stay is doing? Is it fear-dominated? And if it is fear-dominated, is that unwarranted? Is that just common-sense strategy of how you win a very important argument? How are you feeling when you see the news? Um, I mean, I've just uh, looked at the website and the video of the um, Better Stay in Europe campaign, the BSE, unfortunately named. That, that, that is not a gr- when you're combining Britain and Europe and the politics, that's not great, is it? No, BSE isn't the best acronym. Um, so I had a look at it. Um, fear isn't exactly the word I would I would use. Um, it's not about fear. It's not so much about uncertainties. I mean, they actually try to make a positive case. Um, that has to be said. But I've, I found it a bit lacking. I found it a little bit bland. And I think probably um, the best campaigns will be run by, by political parties mm. because they perhaps they don't have to be cross-party they can actually politicize the debate. So they can actually say, right, um, the EU isn't perfect, this is what needs to be reformed, but us as liberals, greens, um, socialists, conservatives, um, for us the EU can do this and that, and that's why we think it's actually good to to stay in Mm. or or leave. So I think less blandness but more of a a political tone would really benefit. Right, because notionally... You know, we've got David Cameron and George Osborne at the head of the government in favour of staying. The Labour Party is in favour of staying, although how enthusiastic its leaders are because they're of the school that came out of the, that 1983 manifesto that I was talking about before. But the party, at least, is in favour of staying with some variation. No doubt they have very different arguments. They would like to emphasise those two parties for why to stay. And then, you know, throw in the Lib Dems, the Greens, etc. Getting mm. all those people on one stage to say, here's our unified message, it's going to be pretty lowest common denominator by the end of that. Uh, you think sharp-elbowed uh, individual party roots to the, to the argument may be more effective? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do think so. Um, I think the cross-party message cannot be so strong. And also, I think um, for the future of the EU, um, for the future of democracy in Europe, for the future of accountability, it's actually important that we... Um, in Britain start to not only talk about in or outside the EU but actually to say there are different ways of um, governing the EU and um, you know if you're a um, a liberal or a green you will have a different vision of the EU and I think that's what, mm. what should be discussed there are different visions and that's what for me the campaign should be about Right, because I mean the term the term used to be Eurosceptic, uh, you know, meant that you had some degree of acceptance of European institutions, but you were sceptical about how well they they were, they were run. You had some pretty 
potent demands for how they should be improved. And I would like to think, surveying the condition of the European Union today, most people would probably sign on for being sceptical about the EU in, in, in that sense. But that means being engaged in an argument about how what the direction of travel of those institutions should be. Whereas now it's become a divide between people who want to reform the EU and people who want to throw their hands up and say this thing is irredeemable, we're, we're off now. Well, there's always been this, this well, the, not always, but it's um, Paul Taggart and, and Alex Sherbiak, they brought up this di- distinction between hard and soft Eurosceptics. So the hard Eurosceptics think... Um, the, the country should leave the EU, and the soft Eurosceptics say, "Well, um, we want to stay in the EU, but um, we want to change it. It needs to it needs to be reformed." And I guess that's now mainstream. Soft Euroscepticism is mainstream in Britain and mm. across Europe. And well, given the amount of crisis that the EU is, is facing at the moment, I guess that's understandable as well. Certain things will have to change. Yeah, I mean, everything is fine. It's probably not going to fly as a, no. as, as a pro-EU message no. in, the current, in the current conditions. So, Nicole, uh, how are you feeling about it, uh, this campaign? Uh, I must admit I feel a bit agnostic uh, about the whole thing, so I, I don't have a particularly strong position. My personal view on the whole is that Britain would be uh, better off staying in. Um, on the issue of the campaigns, and I agree it has to be multiple campaigns, uh, the coherence thing that, that uh, both Anthony and, and Isabel mentioned is a big problem. So trying to have umbrella campaigns for both camps uh, I don't think is feasible. And in terms of moving away from the fear factor, uh, because I do think it's unfortunate uh, that both campaigns have focused, focused to some extent on the negative arguments, I think, as Isabel suggested, having multiple campaigns and setting out multiple visions of Britain's future, either in or out, is probably the way to go, uh, and, and to that extent you have to sacrifice some coherence. Uh, I'm hopeful that, that as the campaign goes on uh, towards the June referendum that it will be more substantive and that we people will get a chance to hear about different visions and to express their opinions. Uh, so far I don't think that the quality of the debate has been uh, that high, but... And, and I also think to some extent it's been overshadowed by personalities uh, and, and that's been unfortunate and all this, especially with Boris Johnson, will he, won't he, which side is he going to come out on that, that seemed a bit uh, theatric to me. So hopefully as the campaign goes on it will get more substantive and, and focus on these different visions for what Britain's future could be either in or out. Yeah, Anthony, I see you straining. So it was, <laughs> the mention of Boris Johnson's name kind of made, made your, your eyes widen, well, your ears prick up. Uh, what, what, what is it you want to say about that? I, I, must, I must say it, it does have that effect on me, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, no, I, I, think, I, I think it's really interesting uh, thinking about the, the reason why they have tried to look to these overarching campaigns. And I would say as someone that studies political parties, it is because this campaign is very dangerous for all of the main parties because... There's a real issue for Cameron being too pro-European. He'll annoy a lot of his own party, probably the majority of his grassroots. There's quite an issue for Labour. Um, again, there's plenty of research that a lot of Labour voters are not particularly keen on the EU, particularly white Northern voters. Uh, Simon Hicks has talked about some of that. And there is a real danger that Labour can lose more support to UKIP in certain areas if they come out as being too pro-European. So 
it is really fraught for, for the parties. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure Cameron regrets offering this referendum. I think yeah. he had to. Well, the, the, this, this was supposed to be like his concession to make the whole thing quiet down and go away, as I remember the time. That was how it was reported at the time. Yeah. It was him throwing a bone to fractious backbenches so that they would shut up and go away and let him get back to his main agenda. Well, good luck. <laughs> if, that, if, if the idea was to get onto a different agenda, I think we can safely say that project has failed. <laughs> I think there's, there's certainly an element of that, but I think, if anything, it was a short-term electoral strategy for fighting off the UKIP threat for the election, and that may have been successful in the short term. I'm of the opinion, I don't think he ever thought he'd have to deliver on it. I thought he wasn't expecting to form a government where he would actually have to provide this, and he could have used it for a beating stick for the Labour Party to say, look, why aren't you giving us a referendum? It was a, it was a short-term political tactic. He ended up winning a large majority, uh, a, a tiny majority, sorry, not a large majority, a majority he didn't expect. Uh, and now he's he's stuck with it, um, and, and so it is going to cause a long-term problem. But the, the whole debate poses real issues for all of the parties dealing with this. There are plenty on the left who are really unhappy with the market market liberalisation and some of the aspects of the EU. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say right. that. Yeah, like within the Labour Party, there are two bits of it that that, that two two wings from which it can go wrong. One is the idea that a lot of their vote is uh, you know white working class northern the kind of the, the kind of. Uh, uh, people who are ready marks for UKIP, they put their mind to it. And then on the other hand, the fact that in the ascendancy within the Labour Party at the moment is this, uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to use the term pejoratively, but this hard left uh, wing of the party that has historically been very sceptical of the EU, that sees that originally, you know, back in the, the early 80s, saw it as this locking in of the capitalist, corporatist order and this closing off of various radical left-wing options mm-hmm. that have now, in their minds at least, come back onto the table as possible avenues for a future Labour government. So, yeah, there's a pincer movement yes. between the, the metropolitan elite radicals and the, uh, yes. uh, the working-class base yes. vote. I think they're both both sides are hoping the umbrella campaigns can get on with it, and then we can all recover afterwards, uh, when we almost certainly vote to stay in, and you know, everything can carry on. Sorry. Yeah, Nicole, you wanted to come back. I just said I, I completely agree with that. I said on your point about David Cameron, and uh, I sometimes wonder what he was thinking. And I agree that it was probably short-term strategy. Uh, he seems to have backed himself into a corner by promising a referendum, uh, stating his position, which is that he wants to stay in. But then, in some ways, and also setting expectations too high, this idea that he was going to go and renegotiate Britain's whole relationship with the EU, which you don't have to know much about the EU to know. You can't just do that over a weekend summit. Uh, and, and the reforms, serious, genuine reforms that would require treaty reforms have to then be passed by every member state. Some countries may need to have uh, referendums. So... And they've got other things to be doing They've right got now, other things to be doing. And the idea that... that Cameron can just show up and he needs this thing for his own domestic audience and all the other members of the EU are just going to drop everything and and give that. It's just not how it works. So I do think he backed himself into a corner and then he had to come back with something. Uh, And if he really does want to stay in, I don't think he's set up this thing very well. But it's also true to say that this this, uh, could be a trap for the Labour Party as well. And until around some point during the Thatcher years, Euroscepticism did tend to come mostly from the left wing in this, and there's still uh, in politics, but also in the scholarly literature, a strong left wing critique. You think of the likes of Fritz Sharp, of, of uh, a strong left wing critique of the EU and the erosion of the welfare state, and 
the kind of negative uh, deregulation tendencies that, that promote free trade at the expense of, say, social rights or workers' rights and these sorts mm. of things. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier the hope that this might be a substantive <laughs> campaign. I mean, that, I mean, we probably could have told David Cameron from years off that this is how it would turn out, but... Mm-hmm. There is a way, and there's a reason why those of us who aren't crazy about referendums in principle uh, aren't crazy about them. It's not just some kind of uh, obnoxious snobbery about the intellectual capacities of the ordinary citizen. It's the fact that when these things have to be organized as a, a, a as a political process, it's inevitable that whatever the preoccupations of the particular moment are, and there will be some, will interact with the echo chamber and the acceleration of the noise machine that is the media to turn an argument that ought in uh, you know, vacuum-packed isolation to be about one thing into an argument about all sorts of other things. And really big, important, momentous decisions about the future of the country can be steered one way or the other by uh, momentary obsessions and strong feelings brought to the surface uh, uh, as a result about, if not unrelated, then tangentially related issues. Are we concerned that that this decision, whether it goes the way that either of any of the participants here would like it to go is going to go the way that it goes not because we have all as a country sat around and had a a proper serious hashing out of the merits or otherwise of Britain leaving the European Union but because you know one side or the other got gets lucky that 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 that, uh, a vote that becomes about something else lends itself to their side is this going to end up being a vote about the right thing is there any hope of that Isabel, what do you think? Um, I mean, if you look if you look at referendums across Europe, and I teach that, so I've studied in great detail. So what, you've, you've looked. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I've looked across Europe. Um, so what types of referendums are being held, um, on what sorts of issues, and I think the vast majority are now on EU issues. So new treaties. Um, do we want to join the the European Union? Um, and Britain now, do we want to leave the European Union? Um, so, um, and just a lot of referendums are not on the issue. They are really on the popularity of a government. They are plebiscites. Mm. Um, also because the government can decide when to hold them, whether to hold them. Um, so this illusion of, of democracy is what, what gets me um, sometimes. And especially also... A, a lot of the people who wanted a referendum were those that were banging on about the sovereignty of parliament uh, in the UK. And of course, a referendum um, takes that sovereignty already away. Mm. Um, Shouldn't you let parliament decide on something like that? Haven't we elected um, MPs to just actually take those decisions for us? So um, I'm not a big fan of of referendums uh, on those big questions. Yeah, I mean, my... my, my, I can see some place for them sometimes, I think, when you, if the government wants to propose some big radical new thing uh, and they don't feel that they ought to do that without a base of popular support, I can sometimes see that maybe you want, you know, the Irish constitution, for example, has a check built in that says you can't give away sovereignty without a referendum. Maybe that's, you know, you could debate the merits of that. 
What I really don't like much is the idea that you, the government doesn't want to change anything. The government just wants to continue with the status quo. Yeah. But you then have a vote on whether it's okay if the government does that. I mean, that's surely what parliamentary representative democracy is about, that, that simply continuing things as they are is the legitimate yeah. prerogative. Of, you know. And so unless and until a government was elected that wanted to leave the EU, then you propose let's leave and then you have a referendum on it. The government saying we don't want to leave, but here's the option, and making that a public debate, that seems a very strange way of, uh, of constructing this. Except perhaps if you have a majority of your population that people might think, or the polling might show, at least until the, elect- the referendum was called, that would like to leave, but you have a political elite that's terrified uh, of doing so, because absolutely no one wants to be the person that took the country out of the EU as leader, because of the uncertainty that happens if they do so. It's the same reason as Cameron didn't want to lose the Scottish referendum or anything else. It's inherently incredibly damaging if they do this and and the uncertainty is there. And of course, the only reason we have this referendum here is because uh, the Conservative government in the the 1990s fought it as much as they could. Uh, There's a lot of people who don't like the fact that referendums completely lose the nuance of the issues and the same kind of sovereignty issues that Isabel mentioned. But it was the only way a divided party, under a lot of pressure from the referendum party, uh, could remain in office. So again, it was for short-term reasons. And ever since then, we've had this notion that we have to have a referendum at some point. There's been repeated promises of it, and it's been repeated in cast-iron guarantees for referendums on the EU constitution and things like that, uh, which, for technical reasons, politicians have got out of. And there is this sense that we have a political elite that doesn't really want to deal with this issue. It finds it very hard to deal with this issue on both sides of the party. So they just punt it. So they punt they it. They say, yeah. you know, I can't, I can't manage my party, so uh, let's roll the dice with the direction of the country well, instead and hope this, I win. Well, I think you only usually promise a referendum if you think you're likely to win it. Uh, as far as I'm, Isabel will know more about this than I do. Yeah. Uh, and they often, as actually rightly say, the Danish and the Dutch and people like this know about losing referendums for... for Reasons that are completely different to the question. Yeah. And, and uh, in Ireland, we know a little bit about it too, uh, mm. where, where they, we have this history of a uh, two-time referendum. If they have one, they yes. lose it. Uh, <laughs> yes. Everyone, everyone like, goes and has a few drinks, <laughs> sleeps it off, and then comes back and votes again. They've done that at least yeah. a couple of times, I yes. think, in, in Ireland. Yes. Yeah. So uh, it, I, it's, a, it's a really tricky one. If you've got a political class that doesn't want to deal with it, perhaps you are going to get pressure for a referendum uh, inevitably. Um, because our politicians will not make a positive case for staying in Europe. Uh, they do not want to. They fear the except risk the of Lib Dems or the eight, the eight of them that are left. Yeah, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, they're not winning any any national yeah, votes. <laughs> <in Tansu. laughs> I think those of us on the, the the leave side are quite hoping they will, but um, that for, again for cynical reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Isabel, do you want to come in on on, on that? I've got got a two finger one. Is that okay? Are you? Yeah, two yeah, finger point. Thanks. <laughs> As I say, well, in Chatham House. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, two things. The the first one was. Um, that we talked about um, David Cameron and um, how half-hearted he is in his staying in campaign. I found it very striking uh, when he went to Brussels and used this battle for Britain language. And I thought, you know, this is something I thought we left behind us in 1945, right? Mm-hmm. This battle and, you know, that's, it's only ever the we and the national interest language. For me, this is about all of Europe. This is about the European um, continent. This is about the future of the European continent. This is not just about Britain and um, and the Conservative Party. And I think this is sometimes not um, discussed here, what that means for the rest of the European Union, our relationship with Russia 
and um, Turkey, our international role. I think this isn't really part of that um, campaign. And yeah, so far I, I find him very half-hearted in his attempt. And the second issue that I wanted to bring up is um, that I think what now comes more and more to the surface, but what we knew all along is that the EU debate has been um, so much neglected in, in the recent years and decades that in, in, in political parties, in all of them, um, the members aren't quite sure and the supporters because the debate hasn't been there for the last mm. decades. On well, the or, yeah, or, or at least the, the, the people who are opposed to the European Union you know, are very vocal and get their views amplified often through the press, but those who are in favour of it just quietly bank it as the status quo yeah. but don't articulate that case in any proactive way it's not an argument that anyone's been apart again from you know maybe nick clegg or someone like that who is not the, the bulletproof shield you want from popular opprobrium right now uh you know very very yeah. few people have wanted to go out front and say okay here is an explicit case for remaining in the eu and i'd like my name on it just discuss certain issues you know whether it's ttip the transatlantic um, trade and investment partnership, um, you can be in favor or against, but that doesn't mean you're in favor of the EU or against it. But even to discuss certain issues, I've you know, done my research on the Labour Party, and yes, it is sometimes discussed, but not often enough. And then come European elections or this referendum now, and you realize that the level of knowledge is shockingly low. Um, People know very little about it, and that's what, what frightens me a bit, because whether Britain leaves or not, um, I think the debate has to be there, and people need to really know what they're voting about and deciding mm. on. Nicole, you got knocked out of the running <laughs> order by that, uh, that, that, that enthusiastic engagement uh, on Isabel's part. But no, that's okay. Just picking up on that, of course, I agree completely that the referendum is of great importance to all of Europe. But unfortunately, uh, to an unhealthy extent, it is about the Conservative Party. It is about the Conservative Party. And it's an abdication of responsibility, as I think both you and, and Anthony suggested. Uh, it is the Conservative Party not knowing how to deal with this issue. Uh, and, and abdicating responsibility by calling a referendum because, of course, the alternative to a referendum is just a campaign on a promise that if you elect us, we're going to leave or we're going to reform or mm. we're going to... But you elect us, that's the decision, that's the vote, and then we work towards that goal. Um, calling a referendum, I think, is a, is a very strange way of doing that it's not you're right that in some countries it, it's it is used every now and then and, but it's not really part of the british constitutional tradition uh, as isabel said before and it's not compatible with parliamentary sovereignty which makes the argument that membership of the eu is not compatible with parliamentary sovereignty a little bit ironic because uh, mm. neither are a referendum so the parliament should decide that so I think it is an unfortunate abdication of, of responsibility. It would have been better to have this sort of debate as part of the election campaign and then for the parties to have a clear position. Uh, but, but the parties are obviously divided. And so uh, to your original question of uh, is there hope that people will vote on this specific issue, and of course you just uh, a lot of people probably won't. There's no way of guaranteeing that uh, referendums are a blunt instrument. So it is up to the campaigns to try, I, I think, to distill the issues as clearly as possible. But as to what people vote on, yeah, uh, who knows? It could be any number of things. 
I mean, there's kind of a tension that if, if you're running one of these campaigns, um, and I imagine they involve different kinds of people, some of them more high-minded than others, there must be a tension between this, like this high-minded, educational, uh, public discourse-improving view of how you might run it, where you go, well, of course, I believe that intelligent people who contemplate the issue and look at the options will agree with what my conclusions are, and if I walk them through my reasoning, then we'll get where we want to be. And then there's other people in the same campaign who will no doubt say, well, look, that's all well and good, but this, the, the result of this is really important, and here's what I know from my, you know, let me open up my lockbox of like, social science about how electorates can be manipulated and uh, uh, models for how you structure campaigns to scare or entice an electorate to vote a certain way, and the two may pull in radically different directions that uh, maybe maybe uh, it would be better for the public discourse to discuss the issues and maybe it would be better for guaranteeing a result if you just take one or two tangentially related scares and uh, hammer them home so that everything else is drowned out. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that stunned the room into, into no, that sorrowful is the dismay. <laughs> that, that is the problem. And then you add kind of tabloid media, which is going to run more of the second type of campaign. And they've um, been running it for about 30 years. So yeah, yeah, that's nothing new. Say. That's nothing new about bananas having to be straight or a certain angle or something and that's all the EU does. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there is that tension in both campaigns. It, it has to be said whether to go more positive or negative, more substantive mm. or playing on people's fears. Yeah, I believe the EU causes cancer now according to, uh, <laughs> to, to Daily Mail front pages. <laughs> I, 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 well, I, even I'm not going to defend the Daily Mail. Uh, but I would like to, it, because of course you mentioned the media and, and the, the length of time we've been in this position as a, a sort of awkward partner, if you use that contentious language in this. And the reason I, I have some concerns about this notion that it should be done at the ballot box in an election and somehow a referendum is incompatible with parliamentary sovereignty, well, of course, if you stick it in the, the manifesto, how much of people's decisions is actually going to be related to that? You're going to have the same issues with the media. It's a bit like saying there are cuts to working benefits in the last Tory manifesto. So that's what everyone voted for and that's what everyone supported. If you have it in a manifesto, people are going to vote on personality and the economy and a whole range of other issues. They're not going to vote necessarily on Europe. And I think one, those of us who have real issues, and I'm sure many pro-Europeans have real issues with how democratic the EU is, at least the referendum gives a country a chance to think about this. And if the pro-European campaign really wanted to come out and make a pro-European campaign for Britain being at the heart of Europe, trying to convince us that we can actually change the EU, that somehow it can be more acceptable to Britain, then I think the referendum is the ideal opportunity to do that without all the other election campaign issues uh, at stake. But so far, there is very little of that. It is more a case of the dangers of what happens if, come, if we come out which is understandable. Uh, but, but where are the people trying to tell us how wonderful the EU is, what a brilliant part of the EU we can be? Uh, and, of course, that, that, that perhaps is more difficult when you see that Cameron went over there to renegotiate, which, as Nicole said, was always completely unrealistic. Uh, but what is the prospect of the EU changing and reforming in, in any way that's going to pacify the kind of soft Eurosceptics? It seems pretty unlikely to me, especially if there's no real case being made for that by the Remain campaign. Mm. As well. I sometimes think that the real Eurosceptics, though, they are not actually interested in in reform. Because if you said, all right, 
let's make the EU more democratic. And there have been serious attempts um, in some countries on the continent, in Germany, for, for example. Okay, let's give the European par Parliament even more powers. Let's say they will get the right to initiate legislation. Or let's actually vote for the European Commission the president and the commissioners, then those are usually the first kind of people who say, oh, no, 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 that's terrible, we can't do that. So any attempt to actually make the EU a bit more democratic or more accountable is then vetoed by exactly those people. I think that's that's a big problem because, that because, because, I see. Because those schemes usually go hand in hand, or the two things, two things go hand in hand. One is let's make them more democratic and therefore more legitimate and therefore more powerful, whereas... You know, those who want the EU to be more democratic usually also want it to be less powerful, regardless of how democratic it is. And that's the kind of subtext, sometimes just the text, uh, but but also sometimes the subtext of what they're Maybe saying. Maybe on one side, but there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of academics and pro-Europeans who think the EU should be more, and they do think mm. so because it should be more powerful. Uh, but but where what, where is the EU going? Where where are the prospects for all these reforms or for anything? But there, there is still, even if this case is not going to convince the Eurosceptics, where is the case for what a wonderful impact the UK can make in changing or reforming or improving the EU. I, I'm not really seeing that from the, the Remain campaign, uh, mm. I'm afraid. I'm conscious of the fact that we have talked about the desirability in principle for a substantive argument about the reasons why one should stay in the EU or not. We have, however, mainly levitated at the uh, uh, the meta level of analysing the debate rather than getting into the weeds of what that would involve. So maybe I could ask each of you if there is, if this were in some dream world to become a referendum that focused on what the really key issues are, the most important thing on which people should decide their vote uh, and reach a judgment, what would you want it to focus on? What would you say the top one, or if you can't choose, top, top, top couple of, of issues that you would want a voter going into the polling booth uh, or, or sitting at home, you know, having their, their week of solid contemplation before they cast a vote would be? On what basis should a thoughtful, properly engaged uh, person in good faith base this decision? Who's going who's gonna to give me a start of a 10 on that, Nicole? I'll start. Um, well, I think if, if, we're, if voters are... are going to be thinking about this, British voters, in terms of uh, British national self-interest. And, and so then you could distill the question to, is Britain better able to secure its interests inside or outside of the EU? Uh, and think about it like that. And then what people really need to compare is not not what Britain, the situation Britain currently has in the EU to some sort of ideal vision of a perfectly sovereign, self-regulating, self-contained, able-to-do-what-it-likes world power, but realistically think about what the future for Britain would be outside. Uh, the EU will still be there and Britain will still need to deal with the EU and, and if it does leave it will have to renegotiate all sorts of arrangements. So I would want people to reflect on whether or not they're better off trying to still reform from within. And, and I, with, on what you said before, Anthony, that I think if the referendum is to achieve any good, it would be in encouraging Remainers to make that positive case. And if that happens, then it actually will have achieved some good, I think, in thinking about a serious conversation for reform and what that would look like, because the EU does need a lot of reform. So I don't think the choices have to be between staying in the EU as it actually exists or this perfect sovereign alternative outside. Uh, but mm -hmm. realistically, 
how can Britain deal with Europe and with the rest of the world? Uh, uh, will it be better off inside or outside? Um, yeah, which I'm not sure if exactly answers your question, but that's what I would encourage people to think about. That's the frame, without that's the frame you would put on it. Presupposing yeah. their response to that, whether they think that Britain's better off in or out. But yeah, because the option, you know, the, the option in Britain is being offered isn't like would you prefer to be the united states like a much power much more powerful freestanding country uh, that mm. doesn't need to concern itself with this option it's you know would you prefer to be the united kingdom as it currently is with its you know income yeah, levels well, analogies have been made that. to norway or switzerland and then you know, in terms of renegotiating relationships and whether or not mm. that's desirable or feasible uh, but I just think for those who think that leaving is a chance to reclaim this lost sovereignty, I think if Britain did leave, they would be sorely disappointed um, by their failure to recoup that sovereignty. So yeah. I think that's how I would frame it, I suppose. Isabel. Um, Nicole has actually framed it very nicely. Um, I was thinking, um, I think my my speech would be if we think big picture and um, the big challenges that Europe faces at the moment and Britain in Europe, I think we are much better off um, dealing with them together. So whether that's environmental challenges, whether that's war um, and the refugees that um, that, that causes, um, whether it's economic issues, so trade we will always be stronger um, together. We'll always um, be able to negotiate um, better deals than any single country could, whether that's Britain or whether that's uh, Germany, France. Um, I think together we're just bigger and and stronger and, and can also set a good positive example. You know, in the climate change debate, um, if we are the role model as Europe, um, I think I think that's really good. Um, so yeah, I think together we're, together is the word. And on the more micro level, of course, the economic benefits of being part of a big um, market and of setting setting the rules as well. If you're outside, you can't. So the Swiss or the Norwegians, um, if they want to export something into the EU, they have to follow all the rules and they can't actually shape them. But Britain can. And the EU has never been as liberal and as anglophone as it is nowadays. So um, Britain has had a huge impact on the EU and a really positive one, I think. And there has, could be more of that. That would be my message. Anthony. Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm conscious you're going to throw things at me, probably, because I, I, some of the same kind of themes, however, I would break it down to a political and an economic argument. And, of course, it is the... Uh, impact of both of those that's caused most of the problems for Britain because I don't think we have massive problems with the pure economic side of the EU it's the fact that people have failed to understand the politics that necessarily comes with a single market in an EU that we have problems with more often uh, I think we should actually think about genuinely the costs and benefits of being within the EU so it does cost us to be in there it does make things like agricultural products more expensive I come from a farming background I've seen the impact that has uh, you can see that there are costs to being in an institution which is inherently protectionist. Perhaps there might also be benefits to being outside that. We would have to accept lots of the regulations that come from the EU, just like we would have to if we traded with anywhere, and anywhere would have to accept the same kind of restrictions that we have if they want to trade with us. I think there are economic arguments that people should actually give consideration to 
about whether it is too big a risk to come out of a protectionist customs union which gives us economic benefits uh, in the hope that we can reclaim economic benefits for, for being more efficient, for being able to trade more easily with other parts of the world uh, if we come out. The economic arguments are important, but so are the political arguments. Britain has always found this pretty difficult, this notion of pooled sovereignty that we find really hard, the idea that you give some power away and they give you some back and that's okay. Uh, and I think the politics of all this is important because if we remain in, and this just continues to be a debate and we continue to annoy the rest of Europe becoming what seems to me to be the potential for being more of a two-speed Europe and more marginalised anyway, I don't have a great deal of... I think we will remain in, but I don't have a great deal of optimism for the future relationship of Britain and the EU suddenly getting much better if we remain in. I think we, we should actually give consideration to that political side as well as the economic side. Hmm. Well, that takes us to the last question that I want to ask everybody before we, before we wrap up, uh, which is... There is going to be a result, one way or another, of this referendum. You know, on June 24th, we all, you know, wake up, some of us head in hands, uh, some of us uh, head in hands for other reasons, maybe. Um, is that going to be an end to it for even a moderately decent length of time? Uh, we've seen in Scotland where they had a referendum that was supposed to resolve this for a generation, and we are pretty much already as good as designing the ballot papers for the next time there's a referendum there. Um, is this going to be something that can be uh, signed, sealed, contained, locked away as a political victory for uh, stay in if stay in wins? Or is this the first punch of a one-two punch that, that sees us coming back to deal with this issue all over again after a running period of acrimony in, in, in between? Uh, Isabel, why don't you give me your first... Uh, <laughs> your, your, the look on your face tells me that even... You look like, look like a woman who is seeing the future mapped out before really? her and is not enthusiastic <laughs> about it. Excellent. Well, I used to think that, no, this isn't going to settle the issue, but I think it will settle it for a generation. And how long is that? 20 years? Well, the last one was in 75. Mm -hmm. How long is that ago? Is anyone good at maths? It's like 40 years. That's 41. It's a long time. Right, that's it. I think that's, that's that. Um, I don't think there will be another um, referendum anytime shortly. Um, you might have known that, or you might know that in, in Switzerland a few years ago, they had a referendum on limiting immigration. So there are now quotas in, in Switzerland and... Um, that referendum was initiated by the Swiss People's Party, or the far-right party. Well, and now all across Switzerland, there are calls to reverse that decision because they realize they can't meet the needs of a very international, very advanced uh, economy. So, of course, there will be then calls in either direction, you know, in Britain as well, to say, no, but let's have another referendum Let's because we need to rejoin the EU or we need to leave it. Mm. But I don't think... Um, it's going to happen anytime soon because um, of the pain and because of the rifts that this will have already caused. I don't mm. think it's, it's going to happen. Cool. I, I don't think it will resolve the issue, uh, but it might reduce tension for a while. I, I, it, of course, it depends on the result and how close it is. If we assume that Britain stays in, if it's the closer it is, then the less likely it is to resolve it. Uh, if it's a very clear majority in favour of staying in, then I think that should, 
as I say, that should reduce tension around this issue and should reduce debate around this issue for a while at least. But that's the thing with referendums. They're not really definitive. Uh, you can always ask the question. You mentioned Ireland. You, you, if you don't get the answer you like, you can ask the question again. Uh, it also, having a referendum sets some sort of precedent that having a referendum is an appropriate way to deal with this question. So once you've opened that door then if something significant enough happens, that can be used as a trigger. You mentioned Scotland, and it's, in fact, ironically, the Brexit referendum that could potentially trigger another Scottish referendum. Mm. Uh, if, if, if if Britain leaves, then yes, the and, and the people result say Scotland would vote was, for that. So. Exactly. So that would be the trigger. So if something significant happens in relation to the EU, then people can say, oh, but it's, that's not what we voted on. Now it's changed enough that we should have to vote again. Uh, and if that happens, then it wouldn't resolve the issue. And I think the closer the result is, the less likely it is to resolve the issue for very long. Yeah. Anthony? Uh, I think I'm probably less optimistic than the two of you. And I think there are, there are several issues here. A lot of it, I think we will vote to remain in. I think it'll be less close than people uh, imagine as well. But a lot will depend on what happens with the Eurozone and what happens with the EU countries and also this fact that we now have, for however binding it is, a notion that if there is treaty change there has to be another referendum which will inevitably come a, become a, a referendum for in or out uh, again. And of course the EU is reluctant to have treaty change because it's going to be problematic in many other countries as well. But eventually, and there are serious issues there that at some stage will need treaty change and uh, I can see Britain continue continuing to become more marginalised and isolated partly because of its own attitude as well as because it's not a member of the Eurozone and it could well become more and more of an issue and perhaps the next time round when there is treaty change and we have another, another referendum the result might be different. Hmm. And of course, it it may depend on who ends up in power in in this country after David Cameron makes his departure from the scene, which he said he's going to do before the next general election. I mean, it's it's very clear to everybody that the reason Boris Johnson jumped the way he did uh, uh, in in this is so that he could set himself up to potentially be the next leader of the party. Um, and there are those of us amongst uh, uh, whom I count myself uh, who think that his preferred sort of gaming out of this situation is actually that Britain votes to stay in so he doesn't want to come in and be like handed that as his first task to negotiate Britain's exit but he gets all the kudos for having taken the position that he did without then reaping reaping the harvest so he could have the odd situation of you know a new prime minister who owes uh, that position primarily to his advocacy of leaving the EU, but who very happily pockets the fact that they're not going to leave the EU and never raises that issue as, uh, unless he absolutely has to uh, again, which would be uh, one more black irony upon other black ironies <laughs> in this in the situation. Which I guess it would put the seal on the idea that this is a sort of psychodrama of the Conservative Party <laughs> that has spilled over, uh, uh, as it were, into the neighbouring uh, into the neighbouring political territory. <laughs> Yes, yes, it's uh, the inevitable problem of party politics coming into any uh, big issue and the, the, the personalisation that comes with it, especially when there are disputes within a party. I, I completely agree, but I, I was surprised that Boris uh, decided to... Uh, I, I, I was on this podcast uh, like a week before it happened mm. saying he can't do that because it will be yeah. so obvious uh, given like all he knows about London and the city of London yeah. and the implications of leaving for the city and, and whatnot that, that he 
could, couldn't possibly really believe it. So everyone will see through it. It'll be so opportunistic and it will be counterproductive. Yet here we are. Uh, he's made the jump and it seems not to... Have, I mean, he, he looked a fool in Parliament, but it doesn't seem to have done him any harm with the broader constituency that, he, that he's trying to appeal to, Isabel. I saw when he made the statement at a factory and, sorry, but that was such empty phrases and such a low level of engagement with the issue, actually. I mean, I would respect him more if he'd actually... Um, gone into the details of what it means um, and why Britain should leave, fair enough, but it was so obviously that it was just a, some kind of vague statement about his personality more than the, than, um, than the policies at stake, and I think that's dangerous. Yeah, it's pretty clear that, that Boris Johnson thinks the most important issue about the European Union is where he stands with regard to it. Uh, uh, that was the tone of the whole week building oh, that, up to, that's all to the topic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> you can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poor Worldview, and please do. Please subscribe to us also on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment there, which helps others, others discover the pod. And you can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash whole world view for uh, show notes and article links and all sorts of other things. Our participants today have been Isabel Hertner. Where can people find you uh, in your online presence if they're so disposed, Isabel? Do you have Twitter handles, Facebook profile people can follow? Uh, how should they track you down? Or they could just email you if you want to, to advertise Well, that. that's the thing. I'm not on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but um, yeah, they can just send me an email. Okay. Nicole, do you have a social media presence? Uh, I'm not on Twitter either. So wow, this is the, probably this, this just email really, as well. This is a really Twitter light uh, panel. We're like uh, walled off from uh, f- from unsolicited barrage from the outside. Anthony, do you make yourself available to be uh, to be assaulted by the opinions of strangers online? I, I tend to. I don't have a profile anywhere, but I, I really. But I do have a Twitter account, which is ajh132. I think, uh, but. Can they do a dead letter drop for you somewhere? They, they can, they can. But, but I only really tweet about cricket and gardening, so uh, um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a lot of use to anyone. Maybe but. there's a, an overlap between that and our audience. Yeah. Well, uh, I uh, am uh, all over social media. Uh, I'm, I'm Adam Quinn, 161 on Facebook. Uh, I'm at Adam James Quinn uh, on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you can also get to me through the, the show's addresses. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you have been listening to us hashing this important issue of the day out at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham, England. Uh, we hope to be back very soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>